Hello, it's Joseph Iski here. Do you need help surviving COVID lockdown with a blast from the not-so-distant past? When I chatted to Laurie Klotz about the importance of nadir testosterone in men on ADT for advanced prostate cancer. Listen in while I chat to Laurie about his landmark paper and why we should aim low for the big T. Testing, one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, 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 that's poppy enough, Wonderful. yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go, we're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchak. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm Nathan Lorenchak. And we're Talking Urology, where we discuss the landmark urological papers and chat to the authors to get some insights into their studies. Today, we are talking testosterone and the importance of achieving very low levels in men being treated with ADT for their advanced prostate cancer. We are going to look at the paper by Laurie Klotz of Toronto, Canada, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in April 2015, titled Nadir Testosterone Within First Year of Androgen Deprivation Therapy Predicts for Time to Castration-Resistant Progression. A secondary analysis of the PR7 trial of intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation therapy. And we asked Laurie if he would join us for the podcast. One, two, three. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's a good idea. Yeah, it all stemmed out of, I went to an ad board and I was actually, because I was asking around, I said, does anybody have a good podcast for urology? I just want something I can listen to for 15 minutes, learn something about yeah. urology that while I'm driving. In my yeah. Car. All right, Laurie, introduce yourself for our listeners. I'm urologist. I do mainly oncology. I'm a professor of surgery at University of Toronto. I work at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. And I've had a long interest in prostate cancer, uh, many, many facets of prostate cancer from early to advanced disease. So one of the living legends of prostate cancer research with us today. Hardly. Historically, castrate testosterone levels have been set at 50 nanograms per deciliter, or 1.7 nanomoles per litre if you prefer. This was the lower detection limit of the first radioimmunoassay technique for measuring testosterone. However, the modern ultra-sensitive testosterone measuring techniques, usually mass spectrometry, can now detect levels below 20 nanograms per deciliter or 0.7 nanomoles per litre. We're using these numbers a lot, so don't get upset if we drop the units. So now we can measure it. This raises the question, is lower better? So 20 was historically the level that was achieved with surgical castration. There's actually been one study published just recently that... Uh, went further and looked at how patients did uh, below eight, like that really ultra-low range, there was no benefit. In other words, in that study, once it was below 20, there was no further benefit to getting it lower. Usually, we set the scene for the paper with some background. But in true Laurie style, he had this covered for us. We asked him why he did this study. The idea that uh, testosterone matters in men on ADT is not a new one and uh, the the first paper that really described this was by Marodi published in 2007 and it was a retrospective paper in 72 patients and it showed the patients whose testosterone uh, these were patients with metastatic disease whose testosterone did not drop below 20 had a much worse outcome than those who had a, a testosterone higher than, certainly higher than 50. 
That's the paper by Juan Moroti, Journal of Urology 2007. In fact, it was 73 patients, but close enough, Laurie, with non-metastatic prostate cancer treated with medical castration and found that if you maintain the testosterone below 32, you had a mean time to androgen-independent progression of 137 months compared to 88 months if it broke through this threshold. I'd had a long interest in intermittent hormonal therapy, which I believed in, still continue to believe in for the right patient. And I thought, why should, how could testosterone be so important if intermittent therapy looks so good? Mm -hmm. So I didn't believe it. And the other thing that struck me was this was pharma-driven. So I would hear about this Marodi paper, and then there's a second one by Parashino, which was a few more patients, but still retrospective and fairly small. And that was the British Journal of Urology International paper from 2010. 129 men with metastatic bone-only prostate cancer. Risk of death was directly correlated to the six-month serum testosterone level with a statistically significant hazard ratio of 1.32 for men whose testosterone was over 20. And then a third one by Bertaglia, published more recently, was about 150 patients. They all showed a benefit. Published in Clinical Genitourinary Cancer 2013, 153 patients mixed M0 and M1. And they found that serum testosterone levels less than 30 were associated with a significantly lower risk of death with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.45. But it was all retrospective, fairly small numbers. And I just kept hearing about it at pharma ad boards and I thought this is this really uh, I don't think is likely to be correct. I too am suspicious of Big Pharma and back in 1995 I would often mull this over while watching new episodes of Seinfeld or ER. So what was Laurie doing? We launched back in about 1995 the PR7 trial which was a large pivotal trial of, uh, of continuous versus intermittent hormonal therapy uh, with a mortality endpoint, almost 1,500 patients, and that trial finally uh, completed in about uh, 2010 and was published in the England Journal 2012, showed absolutely no difference in overall survival between continuous and intermittent therapy in men with uh, rising PSA after radiation or surgery plus radiation. And we collected testosterone in the first year of, we collected testosterone throughout that trial, but particularly in the first year, every time patients came in for their injection, they got a testosterone of PSA. I asked Laurie how he knew that testosterone was going to be important when they were designing this trial back in 1995. This is 20 years ago when we thought that cancers were, quote unquote, hormone independent. Because back then we thought we had the androgen receptor absolutely nailed with androgen deprivation therapy. There was a lot of interest in <coughs> testosterone kinetics, for example, during the off-treatment interval, and how long does it take to reach a testosterone yep. nadir. So my goal was to disprove the Marodi uh, data that testosterone really mattered. The other part of it, in my thinking, was we know now, we didn't know then, you have intracrine synthesis of androgens through the backdoor pathway, prostate cancer cells figure out how to make their own androgens. Why should the serum level be so important? And that is the $64 million question. Or at least. This study looked at the 696 men in the continuous arm of the PR7 trial. Men were included if they had had at least three serum testosterones in the first year, which left 626 available men with PSA recurrence after having primary radiation or primary surgery, then radiation. 
for their prostate cancer with M0 disease. And this is the point I want to pick up on for just a moment. We have the two big intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation trials with apparent different results. The PR7 trial with first author Juanita Crook enrolled men with M0 disease and found no difference in overall survival. The SWOG trial with Maha Hussein enrolled men with M1 disease and found that intermittent therapy was almost certainly inferior to continuous. But I think in non-metastatic disease, the data is pretty clear that these patients have a long off-treatment interval in many cases. They have long survival. You reduce side effects of treatment, which are very relevant in these patients. You cut costs. It makes a lot of sense. In metastatic disease, you have to be very selective. So, you know, if you select a guy who doesn't have such extensive disease, the PSA has a complete response to undetectable levels. One try of stopping therapy to me is worthwhile. And many of these patients will have a very long off-treatment interval. And if they don't, then you put them back on continuous and I don't think there's any harm done. Of course, the primary hypothesis was that a higher nadir testosterone value in the first year of ADT would correlate with a reduced time to development of castration-resistant prostate cancer and lower cause-specific survival. But didn't Laurie just say he expected survival not to be correlated with testosterone? But I guess history is written by the victor. Anyway, as already mentioned, 626 men were included and nadir, medium and maximum testosterone levels were measured during the first year of therapy. That's right, nadir is the lowest the testosterone ever got to. But because this could have been just a one-off, they also looked at median to get a kind of average and also maximum to capture all the breakthroughs or mini flares to determine if these were significant events. But if we just focus on the nadir testosterone, a level of less than 0.7 or less than 20, this was achieved in 78% of men. A further 21% achieved the intermediate range of 0.7 to 1.7 and only 1% never got below the magical 1.7 number. During the study, 226 men developed castration-resistant prostate cancer while receiving continuous ADT for a median of 8 years. Median time to castration-resistant prostate cancer was 10 years. Around 20% of men died of prostate cancer with up to 10 years follow-up. So just a note, this is median survival is going to be more than double the SWOG trial. This is the difference between the M0 and the M1 patients. Patients who did not achieve nadir testosterone at the magical less than 0.7 or 20 level had a significantly higher risk of developing castration-resistant prostate cancer. If you nadir in the intermediate range 0.7 to 1.7, the hazard ratio was 1.62. If you never reached below 1.7, the hazard ratio was 1.9. Benefits in delays of progressing to castration-resistant prostate cancer were also seen with lower median and maximum testosterone levels. And nadir testosterone of greater than 1.7 had a shorter time from castration resistance to death compared with groups with better testosterone suppression. And testosterone levels had similar effects on cause-specific survival. Patients with first-year nadir testosterone consistently greater than 0.7 had significantly higher risks of dying as a result of their disease. In fact, compared to men whose testosterone suppressed to less than 0.7, The hazard ratio for cancer-specific death in men with testosterone levels in the intermediate range, 0.7 to 1.7, was 2.08. And those with greater than 1.7, the hazard ratio was 2.93. So this was just the effect of the the level of testosterone in men on the continuous arm. And to my complete amazement, 
we absolutely vindicated the results of those earlier trials. The uh, hazard ratio for time to progression uh, for the patients whose uh, median PSA was above 50 or 1.7 was about two times greater mm -hmm. than the ones where it was fully suppressed below 20. <clears throat> and uh, the patients in the intermediate range had interme intermediate time to progression. Mm -hmm. And it was a very robust finding whether we looked at cause, it was strongest for time to progression, but it also was there for prostate cancer mortality. And for comparison, an analysis of the relationship between serum testosterone in the first eight months of ADT was performed in the intermittent ADT cohort. A similar correlation was found between time to castration-resistant prostate cancer and median testosterone level. There was no correlation between minimum and maximum serum testosterone levels and time to castrate resistance or cause-specific survival in men in the intermittent arm. We looked also at the intermittent arm, and all the trends were in the same direction, but the data was not as clean, which is kind of to be expected because these are guys are going off treatment, the testosterone's coming up, there's variable off-treatment intervals, so there's a lot more variables at work in terms of time to progression. So what does it all mean? A recent review found that up to 12.5% of patients do not reach the 1.7, that is 50, serum testosterone target, and up to 37.5% do not attain levels of 0.7, i.e. 20. Why is it so important to achieve a testosterone of less than 0.7? The reason probably is that uh, despite all these, all these survival mechanisms that kick in, um, you, uh, uh, prostate cancer cells are heterogeneous in terms of their response to different levels of testosterone and there's preclinical pre evidence to support this. So for example, some variants of LINCAP, which is an androgen receptor containing cell line, are maximally stimulated and others are maximally suppressed at the same level of testosterone. So there's preclinical evidence for it and if you can imagine uh, imagine a three cell type model, just to make it simple. You have stem cells that are not antigen sensitive at all, they don't express the receptor. You have typical uh, hormone sensitive epithelial cells that die, whatever the testosterone goes down to. And then you have a third compartment of partially sensitive, partially resistant cells that only die if the testosterone goes below 20. So the basic concept is, if you hit the cells hard during the on-treatment interval, you kill off both those compartments, the partially sensitive and the sensitive cells, and then the, the stem cells repopulate with antigen-sensitive cells. Whereas if you don't drive the testosterone low, then the partially sensitive cells survive and they repopulate with a more antigen-resistant phenotype. So Laurie, if intermittent androgen deprivation relies on repopulating the cancer with androgen-sensitive cells, should we be replacing testosterone in the off phase of intermittent treatment? So I don't believe in that for a few reasons, although I could be wrong. And what you say makes sense. But first of all, I'm not convinced exogenous testosterone is the same as endogenous in terms of being as innocuous. And... In our study, the majority of patients recovered testosterone to at least 50% of baseline by six months. And that should be enough if you, if you believe at any level this saturation hypothesis that you know the energy receptors saturate relatively low levels of testosterone. Most patients will be in that range by six months. So 
I don't give testosterone the limited experience. No, no one that I know of has ever done any significant series in exactly the scenario we're describing, intermediate mm. therapy to replace. People yeah. have talked about it. But giving testosterone to a patient with advanced prostate cancer, mostly they don't do well. This is very significant if these men are at a higher rate of progression to castration resistance and prostate cancer-specific death. Acknowledging that this was not an intervention study, can we extrapolate that if a man is failing to suppress his testosterone, should we change to another LHRH agonist or to an antagonist? I think you can. If you're a purist, you would say the study has not shown that lowering testosterone improves the outcome. But I think that's a, that's a reasonable inference under the circumstance to say guys did better with low testosterone. And because, you know, different people respond differently to different, anti, uh, different uh, LHRH agonists and antagonists, I, what I think is correct is to do the testosterone, whatever you do the PSA, if it's consistently above 20 or 0.7 nanomolar, you should switch uh, LHRH agonist, try a different one or try an antagonist and try and get the testosterone down. Uh, I don't, most patients will respond to a change. Why will they respond to the change? There may be many reasons why the testosterone is not suppressed. So it might be absorption. Some patients may not just absorb the depot. And just to illustrate this, I have one patient who uh, got a got a Zolodex and got out, went out to his car and decided to have a look. So he lift up the bandage. He saw the pellet had extruded onto his abdomen. So he picked it up. He thought he knew it's worth like a thousand dollars. Said, "What the hell am I going to do with this?" <laughs> Popped it in his mouth and he ate it. So he is not going to get good testosterone suppression from that dose of Zolodex. And, you know, I mean, I, that, that probably goes on more often than we think, or some of the drug is wasted or it just doesn't get absorbed or it goes, you know, it doesn't go into the right spot. Why should the testosterone level matter in men receiving continuous therapy if intermittent therapy achieves the same prostate cancer-specific survival in non-metastatic disease, of course? Well, that's kind of the point I think I made earlier, that... Um, you don't, the, the fact that the low testosterone is important doesn't mean it has to be sustained. It's important to get cell killed during the treatment period. Then you stop the treatment. It's okay to have the testosterone come up. So the two, I mean, you're right on the face of it. It's a conundrum. But if you drill deeper, it's, it's, there's a very plausible explanation why both those things can be true. Well, this has been fun. And I think the evidence for suppressing the testosterone to less than 20 is quite convincing. I now do a testosterone with every PSA for the first year of ADT and at least once per year after that if the PSA is stable. Laurie's been great and he even gave us a little chestnut to go home with. So what's the message? I mean, uh, the message is you should track testosterone and it should be suppressed and the patient will do better. The only thing that predicted for failure to suppress was young age. So it makes sense that gonadopituitary acts more robust in younger men, harder to suppress. But in fact, although the men who had uh, higher testosterone on treatment were younger, they actually did worse, even in terms of time from progression to death. They, they had a shorter time if the testosterone was higher. You might think you have room to manipulate the testosterone further. If it's higher, they might do better. They, they didn't. 
We've been Talking Urology with Laurie Klotz. You can contact us with questions, corrections or updates at talkingurology at gmail.com. And as usual, all negative feedback can be sent to the person who invented the assembly technique of the Swiss lithoclast master. Never fails to stump us. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen. Thank you.